You're listening to a best of edition of Stacy on the Right. She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. And I think on, on health reform, on, uh, on drug pricing, on a whole range of areas, uh, on the issue of infrastructure, there are, there are common interests uh, if the president's team and the Democrats in the House can find mm-hmm. you have the patience to sit down and talk to each other. The people of Florida deserve fairness and transparency, and the supervisors are failing to give it to us. Every Floridian should be concerned there may be rampant fraud happening in Palm Beach and Broward counties. This is the closest U.S. Senate race contest in Florida history. And even though Senator Nelson is still behind at this point, he and his campaign team and their attorneys fully believe in the end, they will win re-election. No ragtag group of liberal activists or lawyers from D.C. will be allowed to steal this election from the voters in this great state. I am proud to be the next senator from the great state of Florida and look forward to going up there and making Washington work for all Americans. And now, Stacey Washington. Welcome, 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 welcome. Thank you so much for being here on a Friday. Friday, Friday, yes. I love my job. I love being on the radio, but I also love the weekend. And this is the prelude to the weekend. It's the show. Afternoon, we are... uh, Really, we have a ton to talk about, and I'm excited because there's a number of things that we can positively discuss, and then, of course, we have some things, developments that I feel like they're needed, and I I don't know if we should celebrate them, but we should definitely be aware of them, so we'll go over those as well, having to do with the the migrant uh, caravan that's on the way and the president's new proclamation. He's made some changes to what qualifies as asylum. And so we're going to unpack all of that. We have so much to get into. Uh, We're going to have Sarah Rosier. She's a news editor for Ballotpedia. She's going to actually give us some 2018 election analysis, um, state government trifectas. Interesting stuff she's going to be bringing to the program next segment. We're going to take your calls in the last segment at 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. And we are also going to be talking about the anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall and um, Veterans Day reflections because, you know, we're celebrating Veterans Day today. Well, some people are celebrating it tomorrow. Um, Today's the last workday of the week. Some people are celebrating today. Uh, But we are definitely going to be uh, talking about that a little bit. Right now, I want to get into our daily confession. It is Philippians 3.14. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You know what's awesome is that we are all set here on earth to do a certain work. We're gifted and talented and and really equipped to do something specific. And so you're equipped to do something specific for God in the kingdom. And it doesn't mean that you know, you're going to, everyone's a preacher, everyone's, no, what it means is wherever you work, whatever you do, if you're working in the home, wherever you find yourself on a day-to-day basis, that is the mission field in which you are to work and to direct others to Christ. And it's not that overt, you know, the kind of Christianity to that, that they often show on television where Christians are these odd, weird people. Yeah, we're a peculiar people, but not in a way that is to be mocked or ridiculed, but in a way that is supposed to be an attractive, sweet aroma to 
Christ, drawing others in. So we all have work to do in that area. We can all, all stand to, to focus on that more and to understand our calling more. And that's why I love this scripture. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And in Luke 16, 16, it says the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presses into it, meaning we all take part in that in our own way. Second Corinthians four seventeen and 18 says for our light affliction, which is but for a moment works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So it is a bit of an affliction. You know, look at what Jesus went through in his time on earth and his ministry. The there were many, many times where as God in human flesh, he had to have just been exhausted with the rudimentary trappings of humanity and being encumbered by being a human being. Yet he did all of that so that he could fully understand what our plight is and be closer to us in that way. And so how much more can we do but to serve God in the way that he has called us to in whatever place we're called to serve in, the home, the workplace, you know, what whatever your work arena is, the place where you spend the majority of your day that you can serve God there and and love him and serving him. I'll close out with this. Second Timothy 4, 7 and 8 says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. That is what we want to be able to say at the end of all of this, at the judgment seat, to know that we have done everything that God would have us to do and to be told, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into that good rest. So a wonderful way to launch off into the weekend. Uh, thanks for being here today. You can go to StacyOnTheRight.com and hit the subscribe button. You can also find out more at Urban Family Talk and um, <laughs> AFR.net. Those are the websites where you can find the podcast and articles at the stand and polls over at Urban, all that good stuff. Check it out. Right now, I want to talk a little bit about Veterans Day. So today I was a speaker. I was actually doing a reflection, which is a very short speech, uh, ahead of the keynote speaker at our kids' um, Veterans Day celebration at their high school. And I was talking about today this, um, it's, it's a story from when I was on active duty where um, I, I've talked a lot about the time that I spent in Saudi Arabia. And I've, I've even mentioned the fact that I lived in Kobar Towers on the rotation before the actual terror attack that destroyed Kobar Towers and injured over 400 servicemen from around the world as well as killing 19 Americans. And so I want to share that with you. I want to I want to talk about this a little bit because we are we're in a time right now where post Kobar Towers, post, you know, Saddam Hussein, post um Iraqi war, we're we're in a constant wartime posture. Most Americans don't even realize that we've basically been at war since we took down Saddam Hussein, since the Gulf War. We've been in a constant state of war, not because we've declared war, but because we've been under wartime authorizations that have not really gone through Congress. It's just been, you know, the president saying we need to operate within this theater and Congress allocating money for it. And we've gone forward. So most Americans don't realize that this is actually the longest stretch of wartime we've ever experienced. And so in light of that, I, I find it's often perfect to to just stop for a second and, and reflect on that. And that's why I was so excited when they gave me the opportunity to speak today. And so I talked about how um, when I was on active duty, I was in my early 20s and I was not, I wasn't living for Christ. I was 
kind of, you know, what, what most of us will call backslidden. I wasn't an atheist or anything, but I certainly wasn't going to church on a regular basis or studying my Bible. I had a Bible, of course. And my mom was constantly asking me, well, did you go to church this Sunday? Where'd you go to church? And I would say, ah, you know, and I remember one time telling her, mom, I'm taking some time off, which, you know, I can't believe I said that, but that's what I said. I was in my 20s. And so back on active duty, I was a maintenance data systems analyst. My data system was the F-16, F-15, both, both of theirs, those aircraft. And my job was to catalog every break that every plane in the fleet would experience on every sortie. If a plane was flying broken, so if a part of the plane was malfunctioning but it could still fly, I would catalog that as well. I had a fancy little office on the flight line where I worked with other people who did the same thing I did. And I was responsible for creating a daily report by a certain hour in the morning that report had to be in so that it could be transmitted to the White House. And all of the other, all other fleets would take note of 33rd Air Combat Command. This is how many planes they have that they can scramble, get in the air and do whatever they need to do. This is how many of their planes have hard brakes. This is how many have soft brakes because the soft brake is one that you can fly with. And so I would make these daily, weekly, and monthly graphs and reports on fleet readiness, and I would extrapolate data to forecast sortie trends. In other words, this plane has broken with this same break this many times over this many months, and so I predict that this many planes will be ready and fully operational next month or next year, and this many will be broken hard, meaning that you can't get them out of the aircraft hangar. And I don't mind telling you it was a blast. It was something I loved to do. I loved that job. I never thought I would. And in, in, in technical school, I thought to myself, what have I gotten myself into? But it was really, it was a great job. Um, in my spare time, I actually served on the Eglin Air Force Base Honor Guard. And I did ceremonial duties, funerals, um, the 21-gun salute. It was, that was also really, really impactful. I remember um, many times we would be the pallbearers at the funerals of veterans who had passed away or service members who'd been felled in the line of duty. And you could hear the sobbing and the weeping and we would fire the guns and it would be birds chirping, beautiful blue sky, you know, Florida weather. And you'd hear these sobs in the background as we'd be folding the flag. I've, I've written about that on Veterans Day commemorative blog posts on StacyOnTheRight.com about how, you know, you can hear our white gloves sliding down the flag as we would fold it and crease it. And every fold, you would hear people sobbing and crying over their loved ones. And so it was an honor to do that, but it was also... Uh, it was it was something more serious that I had to do. So this snappy uniform, super fast computer, awesome coworkers, the smell of JP8 in the morning. I felt like it couldn't get any better for me being on active duty. And of course, this is, you know, peacetime footing. Yes, we were at war around the world, but I was in Florida. I was stationed on Eglin Air Force Base. I was enjoying working in the Air Force. And so late in the summer of 1995, I learned that our unit would be rotating as a part of an entire coalition of forces stationed at Riyadh Air Force Base in Saudi Arabia in support of Operation Southern Watch. And I was actually given a choice whether or not to deploy uh, in January or wait and deploy in the next round, which was spring summer. And so then at the time, my boyfriend, but my current husband, um, he was like, don't go in the summer. It's going to be like 115 at night and so hot in the day and you won't be able to tolerate it. And so at his suggestion, I took the first rotation in January. And right before I left, about two weeks before I left, an airman moved in across the hall from me in the dorm. And he was a quiet guy, crew chief. He would smile and say hello, but we didn't really get to know each other beyond just speaking and passing. And so I went, uh, I, would, I, I would deploy there and stay for 94 days. And I was living in Kobar Towers in Dharan uh, with hundreds of other service members. And 
I, I tell you, I didn't expect to enjoy it, but I did. Being in the Middle East as an American with command sponsorship and a green ID card meant that I was a straight up tourist, but with respect because Saudi Arabia is a partner with the United States and they want our troops in their country. They want the partnership between America and and themselves. They love it. They do not want to jeopardize it. And so they treat American service members very well. And so I got to drive a Jeep off base. This was before women had the right to drive there. Remember, they only got the right to drive earlier this year. I was driving way back then, just driving a Jeep off base. As long as I had a military hat on, I could drive. And I learned a lot. I shopped a lot. We ate off base a lot. We really had a good time. And so at the end of that 94-day deployment, I took the 24-hour journey home on a C-130 with everybody else in my unit. And my quiet neighbor from across the hall, I remember seeing him in the hallway and going to unlock my door. And he said, I'm, I'm, go- I'm in the next rotation. And I was like, see you when you get back. And he's like, yeah, see you when I get back. So... I had a busy spring while he was deployed with the rest of the people from my unit who didn't go in the first tour. And I was spending time at the beach with my then boyfriend, settling back into the routine of beautiful weather and living life the American way, the Air Force way. And my husband and I, then boyfriend, we got engaged. And then a couple of weeks before that rotation was supposed to return to Eglin Air Force Base, Hezbollah al-Hajjaz bombed Kobar Towers And because they pulled up a truck with 3,000 tons of an explosive in it and a eagle-eyed individual on active duty noticed the truck parked there and began to evacuate Kobar Towers, the death toll was minimized, but we still lost 19 men. And of those 19 men, 12 of them were from the 33rd Operations Group, of which I was a part in the 33rd Air Combat Command. I was in 33rd OSS, which is Operations Support Squadron. And in those 12 men was Airman First Class Peter J. Margera, the quiet guy who lived across the hall from me that I only knew for a couple of weeks before he deployed. And so when I was speaking to the students today about this story, I asked them, (laughs) you're probably thinking, come on, lady, what's your point? Why are you telling us this story? Well, the lesson I learned with the passage of those airmen is that we can't take time off. We can't go out into the world from high school or from wherever we are and take time off from God. We have to live for him every day. None of us is here by accident. We all have a high calling on our lives and we need to pray and work and laugh and pray and study and pray and witness and pray and live for him. Don't take any time off from Jesus. We'll be back with our first guest right after this. Are you still stuck on the healthcare roller coaster? Still paying those high premiums? And strapped into huge deductibles? Not knowing what's around the next turn? Well, then let me tell you about a sound, sensible healthcare choice that really is affordable. It's MediShare, the healthcare sharing solution people like you have been trusting in for more than 25 years. MediShare members report saving around $500 a month on their healthcare costs, and they never pay for things they don't believe in. Time to say goodbye to that healthcare roller coaster and say hello to MediShare. Call star star 345 to find out how much you can save on your healthcare. MediShare. Call star star 345. Message and data rates may apply. That's star star 345. 
Hi, I'm Crawford Ritz with a Legacy Moment. It has taken me years to become a listener, and I'm still working on it. I, I'm a preacher, and I tend to talk too much. Now, I'm not alone in this. I think too many of us make too much noise. Even in church and in our private times of worship with the Lord, we have too much to say. We sing, we preach, we pray, and we share. But the question is, what did God say to us? Sometimes when we worship, we talk too much. God has far more to say to us than we have to say to him. The other day I was reading in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and this passage really hit me where I'm most vulnerable. Listen to these words. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. There are three perspectives I want to share with you from these verses. One is our awesome holy God wants to speak to us. God has something to say to us. The second perspective is this. Think and weigh what we utter to God in prayer. Let's think about what we're saying. Measure our words. Weigh them. Ponder them. Then thirdly, God sees and knows what we don't. We need to listen to what he wants to say to us. Here's what I want you to remember today. Let's get rid of the noise during our time of worship. God knows more than we do, so pay attention and let him speak. Crawford Loritz is senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in suburban Atlanta, Georgia. For more information, go to livingalegacy.org, livingalegacy.org. Legacy Moment is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Global Ministries. You're listening to a best of edition of Stacy on the Right. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. So much for being here today. I am excited to speak to our next guest. She's the news editor for Ballotpedia. Her name's Sarah Rosier. I hope I'm not butchering your last name, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's perfect. Thanks for having me, Stacey. Oh, good. I got it right. <laughs> so I totally butchered a guest name the other, and I heard him like utter, utter a tiny little laugh. <laughs> <laughs> then he corrected me, and I'm like, oh, no, here comes a nice last name. I love it, but am I totally butchering it? So good. I got that good. Um, so let's talk about this midterm. It has been a real split result, a total, um, like, each side can say, ooh, we won, and each side can say, ooh, we lost. Um, Americans clearly are wanting not anyone to have too much power in any one spot. Um, how are you seeing what happened on Tuesday night? So we're looking at a few different angles in, in thinking about the results from Tuesday. One thing we're looking at is not just who's controlling the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House, but also who is controlling state-level government. So it's not just about the federal government. It's also about media. We analyze what's happening at the state government. Sorry, I, I had to step away from my Wi-Fi went out, my, out of my house, so if you hear anything, it's <laughs> where oh, I ended no. up having to set up. No problem. But, um, yeah, so the state government was really important to to analyzing what happened on Tuesday night as well. And one thing we look at is something called government trifectas. So at the state level, we're looking at who controls the governorship, who, what partisan control is there in the state house and the state senate. And if one party is in control of all three of those branches, we're considering that a state government trifecta. 
So that was really interesting to track how Republicans did on Tuesday night, not just in the, you know, holding control of the Senate and even gaining some seats and then their reversal in the House, but also how the stranglehold on state governments that Republicans have had for many years, they've they've done so well at the state level, how that played out on Tuesday night as well. So I, I that is that is an interesting phenomenon. And, and I live in one of those states here in Missouri. We have uh, what Democrats begrudgingly call one party rule. Um, mm-hmm. Now, in, in our population centers, they're heavily controlled by the Democrats. We have Cape Girardeau, Kansas City, and we have St. Louis. And there are population centers. They're also where you find the largest concentrations of Democrats. We also see in those areas, the, especially the inner city parts of those areas, where Democrats have utter control, we see busted budgets and poor school outcomes. And so really, it's, it's one of those situations where we see a lot of complaining from, let's say, inner city St. Louis about circumstances in education and uh, taxation, home values, um, services. But if you look at the county, St. Louis County, it's divided government there and mostly it leans to the Republican side and it's very well run. The money's managed. The schools are good. The crime is low, et cetera, et cetera. And then when you look at the state house, the Republicans have a lock. It's, it's a stranglehold um, so much so that a lot of the Republicans and I'm, I'm speaking from actually talking to these people. These Republicans aren't really Republicans. They're Democrats, but they run as Republicans because they can't win as Democrats. And when they get there, they kind of govern as moderate Republicans or right-leaning Democrats. But for the most part, everyone down there who has any power at all is a Republican. And so it's kind of like what you said. And the only way that changes in Missouri is if they radically gerrymander the districts, which that bill passed for us as well. It's called Amendment 1. And -hmm. a lot of Americans in Missouri are going to be really surprised by what happens with that if it's allowed to stand. Where do you see – I noticed I'm on your website where you did the breakdown – um, you saw Democratic trifectas increase from eight to 14. Do you see those states improving, giving total rule to the Democrats? Well, what happens under full trifecta control is it makes it a whole lot easier. As we know, when there isn't the threat of veto, the parties in control can pass more of the bills that they have interest in. So you look at a state like Illinois. So that was under Ronner, who was known as more of a moderate he lost a lot of support from his Republican base heading into this election, too, because of his moderate views. But you do look at a state like Illinois, where they were trying to tackle issues like pension reform, um, some education issues under Ronner's direction the past four years. Um, and the state legislature knew that they had the threat of veto coming from the governor's mansion. Now, when you're in trifecta control, that threat of veto is gone. Uh, so it's just like Congress. You think about now. Now Trump has lost the House, so there's there's going to be more pushback and more ability for Democrats to push back on Trump administration policies. It's going to be the exact same with some of these state-level governments that have gone from divided to Democratic trifecta this year. Um, I'm personally based out of Maryland, so for us, it's, it's a very similar situation to what you described in Missouri, except often opposite. So we have, we're a very blue state in Maryland, but we have Larry Hogan, who is an extremely popular governor. I, I wasn't even expecting the margins by which he beat Ben Jealous on Tuesday night. They were very large. <laughs> it was a clear it was a clear message to statewide Democrats that, that they didn't necessarily like the candidate that was put up. Mm-hmm. So for Hogan, though, 
on Tuesday night, we saw the number of seats in the legislature in the state delegates for Republicans decrease. So these voters loved the top of the ticket, but by the time they were voting for their state legislature, legislators, they had a hard time continuing that Republican vote down the ballot. So this means it's going to be harder for Hogan to have meaningful vetoes because they can be overturned in the state Senate and the state House because of the margins there. So there's a lot of factors when you're looking at state government control as to what what it means. But when you do have trifecta states, it makes it easier for the party in charge to push through legislation that they're interested in. So for Missouri, if you know if you are a Republican in that state, you'd want that red trifecta control. And you look at the different states of Illinois, again, Democrats are very pleased with what happened on Tuesday night there because they won't have this subtle threat of a veto coming through with any Democratic legislation that goes through. Uh, the state assembly and the state senate. But you know what's funny about Illinois? They have this huge population loss that has not really abated. Year after year, they have more people moving out than moving in, which is mm-hmm. decimating their tax base. And they have a serious pension problem. And so by giving the Democrats this kind of unimpeded rule, they're basically accelerating the demise of the state. I mean, I, I, we used to joke around about it when we first moved here that they should break Illinois up and divide it amongst the three states that border it. So obviously Missouri would get some of it. And the outstate of Illinois is extremely red, but the population center is so large that it basically nullifies all of the votes of the people from the outstate. And I, I, I used to joke around about that, but that was actually a proposal. I read articles about it. People are now much more seriously considering the fact that Illinois might not be able to, to prosper and continue on as it is. And now that they've given all of the control to the Democrats, the same individuals who kind of ran the pension program into the ground, the same party that advocates for the kind of policies that drive Americans out of Illinois, the high taxes, the the utter control, the command and control kind of processes for the people who live there. I mean, I, I don't understand that. I don't understand why they would say we need more Democrats in charge when the current situation is the fault of the Democrats. You know, we're talking 20, 30, 40 years of just Democrats kind of running ramshod over that state. I think it really has depended, especially in 2018, it, it, it depended on what candidate was running. You had a few states where Republican governors in deeply, deeply blue states held on. I mentioned Larry Hogan. You had Baker in Massachusetts. And I think it's just about the way in this post-Trump world and what we've seen with the Democratic backlash and, and everything that was part of the 2018 narrative. It really has depended on how well candidates, governors are able to connect with the people. And you saw people like Larry Hogan out on the streets in Baltimore during the the riots in, in um, 2014 and 2015. And you saw him connecting with the residents of the state. I don't think Ronner was able to do that as effectively and efficiently. And that hurt his ability to govern and get reelected. So I don't, you know, in this 2018 world, it's about what policies these politicians are heralding. And in Illinois, it just didn't seem like Ronner was able to connect with, with the base. He lost a lot of Republicans in that really heavy primary challenge this year. Oh, and yeah. I think that translated over to the general election quite a bit. You know, I think 
something that you're saying here, Sarah, that people would do well to listen to is that in, at the end, even with all of our technology and the, the very rancorous partisan atmosphere and that some people love Donald Trump, some people hate him more than they hate cancer. It's just like the, the worst polarization. But in the end, the candidate, him or herself, matters almost more than anything else. You're saying that Rauner could have really survived had he connected with voters and had he been able to explain and articulate what he wanted to do and keep his coalition together. And some of these other candidates and and other races around the country that have been really bellwethers like Claire McCaskill, I think she really lost out to the youthful promise of Josh Hawley in addition to the fact that her own base no longer trusted her. And so it was it was kind of like straddling the middle became such an exercise for her that she lost the trust of some of her coalition. So it's really the person, isn't it? The candidate matters a lot, a lot more than other things. It really does. It's why Texas, I mean, for us at Ballotpedia, when we started seeing indications that the Senate race in Texas was going to be closed, it again, it came down to personality. You had Beto O'Rourke, who was who traveling through the state on a pickup truck and seemed to be very able to easily connect with those voters, it's, it's kind of hard to have fathomed a, a Cruz re-election that would have been as tight as it was. And it was because of that. People are looking right now towards amiable personalities who's going to connect with me, less about policy. The policy, we, are, we all already know our stances on and our own opinions on the major policy. But this election, it seemed to be a lot about, is the candidate connecting with me? Is he or she out there making an effort relating to me? And that was a big thing this, this cycle that I think we'll see, we'll see repercussions from for a while as, as the 2020 field starts gathering. Um, I don't think we're going to see another election where it's, it's two disliked candidates like we saw a majority of America wasn't voting for Clinton or Trump. They were voting against one or the other. So mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to see that same phenomenon in 2020 because we're all starting to see that this likability thing is a very big deal. And that played out this cycle. It's interesting because I, I agree with you that there was a huge coalition of voters on both sides that they didn't realize it maybe, but they were against Hillary Clinton. Like that was it for me. I was against her. Um, more than they were for the other person. And I wasn't so much, you know, I wasn't ambivalent about Donald Trump, but I definitely was against Hillary Clinton. And when you talk about the likability factor, there's something that I really, I discounted. I knew that the rallies were important and that they were uh, filled with people who liked Donald Trump. But it's it's one thing to know that or to watch them on a, a YouTube video. I attended one. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm telling you, I've, the difference between watching it and being there is something like being on another planet, like the electricity. (laughs) I mean, it was like a rock concert and I've never been to a rock concert before. And it's, I think it makes me like the only American in in the face of the planet that's never been to a concert before. I've been to like church concerts and stuff like that, but never one of those ones where it's like a hundred thousand people and it's some, you know, rock star. This is what that was like. I was there with thousands of people and there was no one in the room who didn't like or love or adore Donald mm-hmm. Trump. And so right. there is a huge coalition of Americans who really are, they're looking to connect with him. They, they hang on his every word. They appreciate his stances. The question is, how does, uh, how does he translate that to a larger group of Americans? Or conversely, how did the Democrats put someone up 
who connects at a greater level than Donald Trump does, even reaching into that independent middle portion of the country, who really, they, they've they not been the ones who needed a rock star. They're not the ones who were enamored with uh, President exactly. Obama. You know what I mean? These are right. not the, the they're, they're not looking for a hero. They just want someone who's sensible and, and kind of moderate like themselves. I'm wondering which of the Democratic candidates even looks similar to that description. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, we're already starting to hear from candidates who have expressed interest in 2020. I don't know if Democrats have that right balance yet. I I think you look at some of the older bench that Democrats are still, we're still hearing about in the media. We're still hearing about, is Elizabeth Warren going to run in 2020? <laughs> what about Joe Biden? Yeah. And it's, it's like, that's not, 2018 tells us that it's going to be somebody, if, if Democrats put up somebody who could be a real obstacle to, to Trump, it's going to be somebody like Beto O'Rourke, not him because he didn't pull off the Senate win, but somebody like him where it's not as much about policy as it's, he's a likable guy. You watch him and you're like, yeah, he's, he's easy to relate to. Um, and I, I don't know if, if that person, you know, we've heard about Kamala Harris possibly running and those types of candidates, but I don't know if they're going to strike that correct balance yet. And I think in the next few months, this will, 2020 is going to heat up really quickly. So we're all kind of buckling down for that already about, yeah, but um, we'll have to see just how that field starts coming out of the gates and who is understanding this. And it's not just personality and in kind of a grandiose personality Trump has and, and Elizabeth Warren and those types of candidates. It's exactly what you said. The middle is just looking for somebody who is relatable, who is measured, a little bit more measured. Um, and I think that's that's what Democrats are going to have to look for if they're going to put up a challenge to President Trump. Well, I think your analysis is dead on. Um, you're, you're making some points that p- people should save this clip from the show and send it over to their strategists and the people who are combing the ground for candidates because... The likability factor is probably going to be the make or break issue. It's funny because I, I feel like the policies are super important and I don't actually mm-hmm. care if I like the candidate. Like I, when Ted Cruz was running for president, I was fine with it. I, I don't have to like you. I just want you to be able to do what you say you're going to do and to be able to effectively govern. But for a lot of Americans, they want that, uh, that friend. And so it'd be great for people to, to consultants to be looking for that when they're deciding who they want to support. Sarah Rosier, news editor for Ballotpedia. Thank you for joining the show today. Have a great weekend. Yep. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you again soon. We will be back with more. Your calls up next, 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. Back in a minute. Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. We've been all over the country helping disaster victims who lose everything. It's truly a blessing. I really don't have the words to express. And yet they see a glimmer of hope when a volunteer shows up. Building the home, that's the second reason we're here. The number one reason is to share the gospel and and give them hope. It's everything that's right in America. I mean, it really represents the, the best that we have to offer. That's one of the main reasons for doing it, is being able to be the hands and feet of Jesus and coming out and working with so many wonderful volunteers. I just feel like it's important in this day and age to teach a child uh, how to serve. Please go to our website, 8daysofhope.com, and click on Get Involved. Submit your email address, and the next time we go anywhere with a disaster, we'll invite you to come along as well. I love coming in the job room because you can see 
these pieces of paper, they aren't just a piece of paper. Right. It's a family that's hurting, and it's a gospel opportunity. And I just thank God, you know, for this moment. I mean, I'll be back in my home, and I know it's going to be awesome. Come love others with Eight Days of Hope. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. A Republican from Oklahoma has a plan to fund completion of the wall at our southern border. Senator Jim Inhofe's solution is simple. Reduce illegal immigrants' access to federal welfare and use those savings to fund the wall. Here are the specifics. The Wall Act would require each person seeking to collect the child tax credit to have a work-authorized Social Security number instead of just the child. It would also require that E-Verify be used to prove citizenship. The minimum fine levied against illegal border crossers would be increased. With open borders Democrats poised to take over the House in January, Inhofe's plan should be implemented during the lame duck session. It's no secret that America is a great place to live. Congress should act quickly to end the attraction of taxpayer-funded easy living for illegal immigrants. I'm Stacey Washington. Find out more at StaceyOnTheRight.com. The Dean's List with Janice Dean. Students who gave the surprise of a lifetime to their favorite custodian makes today's Dean's List. James Anthony has been working in the same school district as a janitor for the last 30 years. Two of the kindergarten classes at Hickerson Elementary School in Tennessee wanted to do something special for James' 60th birthday. Since James is deaf, the adoring students asked their teacher if they could learn happy birthday in sign language. The sweet janitor could barely believe his eyes. Happy birthday, dear James. We love this story. Happy birthday to James and to the wonderful kindergarten classes at Hickerson Elementary School. You all made the Dean's List. Janice Dean, Fox News. You're listening to a best of edition of Stacy on the Right. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Late Tuesday night, our win was projected to be around 57,000 votes. By Wednesday morning, that lead dropped to 38,000 votes. By Wednesday evening, it was around 30,000 votes. This morning, it was around 21,000. Now, it is 15,000. On election night, Broward County, Broward County said there were 630, 634,000 votes cast. As of today, as of 1 a.m. today, there were 695,700 ballots cast on election day. At 2.30 p.m. today, the, no- the number was up to 707,223 ballots cast on election day. And as we just learned that the number has increased to 712,840 ballots cast on election day. In Palm Beach County, there are 15,000 new votes found since election night. So it has been over 48 hours since the polls closed and Broward and Palm Beach counties are still finding and counting ballots. And the supervisors, Brenda Snipes and Susan Booker, cannot seem to say how many ballots still um, exist and where these ballots came from or where they have been. So that was Governor Rick Scott expressing frustration over the fact that the same bad actors are now just showing up with new ballots, new new boxes of ballots. It's just like um, 
it's like a magic what what is it like a magic box in the cartoons where something just you can keep reaching in and pulling something out and it's a never-ending box there's no bottom to it and you can always reach in and get something out it it feels like that and his frustration is also the frustration of millions of Americans including millions of Florida Floridians who live outside of Broward County who recognize that Broward County is just full up to the neck of corruption these people do not no, right from wrong. This is the same county in which Sheriff Israel and his police officers, those police officers who hid behind their police car while children were being gunned down in Parkland High School, that's the same county, the same kind of corruption. And this woman, uh, the one he's mentioning in the, in the clip, um, who is the election supervisor, she's the same one who presided over the hanging Chad fiasco. Remember that from George Bush? I mean, they just don't have an honorable, moral, uh, upright, integrity-filled process going on down there. He's right to call for an investigation. It's not an unlimited number of individuals who can vote in a county. You certainly can't have more people voting there than you have living there. And for goodness sakes, we've got to be suspecting of the entire thing because they're saying that the all the votes they found they're breaking for the Democrats. 70% of the votes are for the Democrats and 30% are for... Now, isn't that convenient? 70-30? I mean, everything about this thing stinks. Everything about it stinks. So um, I wanted to return really quickly. I was... Uh, in the first segment, I was talking about the the story from when I was on active duty and and the loss of my neighbor across the hall who I barely knew and how that really... It was a it was kind of a wake up call for me because I describe how much fun I had working in on active duty in the Air Force. And I mean that, you know, obviously I had some tough times, too, but I describe the the kind of fun aspect of it because I was young. I was single. You know, I'm I'm in love. This is my husband I'm talking about here. He was my boyfriend at the time. And uh, even when I deployed my husband had deployed in the fall and he'd gone to Italy and he was gone for uh, almost 90 days. And then he came back. And then a couple, like less than two months after that, I deployed to Saudi Arabia. And I found myself really enjoying being in the Middle East. I wasn't expecting to like it at all. And probably because I knew I had an end date and I was coming back and I wasn't there during a wartime operation. And I, I really, I'm highlighting how much fun it was because it's in those fun times that we don't feel like we need God as much. We all know this, you know, if you're a Christian and you've walked with the Lord any amount of time, you know, when things are great, you tend not to pray as hard and as fervently and you tend not to be as plugged in and you're going to church, but you're not, you're not hanging on every word. But when we're in the valley, it's like, oh my goodness, Lord, you know, help me get out of here, pull me out of this ditch. And so I, it was a wake up call for me. I remember standing in King's hangar. It's the only hangar in the United States that has a retractable roof that's owned by the United States military. And there was a, uh, a stealth bomber parked nearby and we were all in the audience and the base commander and some other very important people were there to speak about the loss of life that we just experienced in the air combat command. And, you know, when anyone in the air force dies and it's a, it's a, a, a you know, kind of a funeral and memorial for them, they always have the missing man formation. And so this was no different. We were sitting in the hangar and the roof retracted and a number of speakers spoke, and then we all sat in a moment of silence, and four F-16s screamed by, and they broke the sound barrier, and then one of them lifted up to the sky, and that represents the 
people that you've lost. And there wasn't a dry eye in the house. I was sitting there. I wasn't sitting with my husband, but we were all in the same uh, section of the of the seating area. And I just remember the crushing weight of knowing that because they'd already taped his door off. So every day I would go leave and come home and they'd kind of just cordoned his door off so that no one would try to enter because his family had to come and get his things. And I remember thinking, all I could hear was myself saying to my mom, I'm taking some time off. And it was just like, a, I couldn't believe that I'd actually said that. And it was a turning point for me because I really began to go back to my roots of being in church and studying the word. And I, and I didn't find a church home there. We went to church on base a few times and the base chaplain was the one who counseled my husband and I before we got married. But it was, it was a process, but it was the kind of the turning point of me going back home as, as, as what I like to call it. And so when I was talking to those students and parents and family members and veterans and first responders today, I wanted to make sure that they knew that, you know, we don't need, we don't all need to see someone else die in order to understand how important it is for us to connect with Jesus Christ. And we've got to be cognizant of the fact that we aren't here by accident, that every one of us has a purpose in the kingdom. And we've got to reach for that prize and keep pressing for it when times are good and when they're bad. And we can't take any time off, not from Jesus. Take time off from work, take time off from politics and issues, but not from not from God. So um, that was my message for them today. And I was it was an honor to get to share with that group of people. There were some amazing people in that room um, first responders, veterans, World War II veterans were in the room. It was amazing. Um, so let's go to the phones. We have Mary in Kansas. Hey, Mary, thanks for calling the show today. Thanks for holding on. Thank you, and I want to thank you for your uh, story of your life as being a veteran, and I appreciate your service. And I have quite a few people in my family that are veterans, and I appreciate them. I will tell you a story. My brother was in Vietnam. I asked him, I said, what do you think about the people going to Canada dodging the draft. And his comment was, Mary, they cannot be criticized. They have to do what they feel is right, just like what I have to do that I feel is right. He says, don't hold it against them. And I thought that was very big of him, or a, a, a Christian way of saying it, and, and not judging them. And I just, uh, and you did answer one question about Florida. I was saying it was kind of odd that all the votes were coming in on the Democrat side mm-hmm. and just a trickle on the Republicans. So that made it look uh, dishonest. But today, let's just remember the veterans and pray that our society will go through the dishonesty and will survive it. And this gentleman will be elected in Florida. And thank you again. And God bless you. Thank you so much for the service members in your family, and thank you for the call, Mary. I appreciate you. I, I, I'm, I'm encouraging everyone in the listening audience. We, I can't stress it enough. What we usually say is, after we've tried every little thing, then we say, well, let's pray about it, or I guess I'll just pray about it. That, this has to be our first step, is to pray for justice and honest dealing down in Florida. We have to pray for that, and, and we have to pray for, for the people who are responsible for investigating wrongdoing, for them to be on their job and to take it seriously and to bring justice into this process. And I'm not saying that just because it's Democrats, okay? Because I know there's somebody who's going to say, oh, well, you know what? She only cares because it's the Democrats. No, I care because if you voted in Florida and now extra ballots are being brought in to nullify your vote, you're being disenfranchised. 
And that is wrong. So if Gillum won fair and square, you know, I'm not going to riot. I don't have time. It doesn't even occur to me. But if he didn't win, then why in the world are we still counting ballots? And where are they coming from? Let's go back to the phones. John, thank you so much for calling the show today. Oh, you're quite welcome. How are you doing today, Tracy? I've been doing well. How are you? Oh, fantastic. I tell you, uh, you said something, and uh, the Holy Spirit just quickened my spirit. You said it. You said uh, something about uh, there's going to be another uh, Democratic um, candidate that's going to uh, rival Trump. But the Spirit showed me this. There won't be, because in this day and time, because we are in the last days, there's only going to be two things sheep or the goats. Anything they come up with is going to be a goat because of the platform and the way that they're dealing with things. They're not going to have anything, and, and hopefully people don't get deceived thinking there's any kind of competition against um, Donald Trump and, and, and what he's doing. It won't be. There will be deception now. You'll think, well, maybe there's a, there is no maybe. It's going to be one way or the other, and it's up to us. The Lord is going to is revealing that so that we can see clearly it is a clear choice in 2020. Now, they'll come up with all kinds of stuff. But I tell you, it's, it's all going to be false deception, because it never said in the last days, let no man deceive you. He didn't say bird or cat deceive you. He said let no <laughs> man deceive you. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because you're right. He didn't say that. <laughs> yeah. You know what, John? That is some wisdom you just shared right there. Because let, let's let's unpack it a little bit, right, John? It wasn't so much that people adored Donald Trump. It was that it was a clear choice between good and evil as it pertained to the policies, right? It, for me, it was the policies, yeah. not so much the people, yeah. even though I don't, I don't respect Hillary Clinton at all. But it wasn't so much that people saw Donald Trump and said, "Woo, what a paragon of virtue. What an, you know, what a, what a utterly moral man he is. No, it wasn't that at all. It was, he was talking about pro-life. He was talking about sealing up the border. He was talking about the rule of law and, and respecting our Constitution. And Hillary Clinton was talking about going to war with Russia and abortion and uh, weird women's rights and, and, and stuff like that. It was, it was really a, no choice at all. But plenty of people were deceived. Yeah, but look at it like this. See... She said that knowing the deal she had already made with Russia, but that was totally evil, you see. So you have to realize, just like Martin Luther King said, it was very prophetic and it be prophetic for all of as long as the Lord, before he comes back. You look at the content of the person's character, mm-hmm. and when they show you who they are, believe it. And, and don't, don't deceive yourself by saying, oh, that's not really what she meant. Because I hear people say that about Hillary Clinton a lot. Well, she was just kidding. She didn't really mean that. No, she meant it. She's really actually quite blatant with her feelings and what she believes. Um, John, thank you for that yeah. wisdom and, and for calling the show today. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. All right. Thanks. I, I, um, I think it's interesting because I hear a lot of – so what – what I get from people in my email box a lot of times is that they'll say, well, you know, you're just a Trump worshiper, which is not at all the case. It's not. And, oh, you know what? I did want to address something. So yesterday, and, and I know I just stopped right in the middle there, um, put a pin in it, try to get back to it. But I want to say this before we get to the top of the hour. Look, yesterday we had Pastor Paula White on the program, and there were some people who were concerned about her theology, et cetera, et cetera. 
that's why I didn't go into her theology on the show. I, I didn't want to have an argument or a debate about her theological background or the soundness of her theological basis or, or any of the history of her pastoring this church or that. I didn't go into any of that because the reason we had her on the program was to offer some perspective on her relationship with the president and his faith walk. Now, remember, when we have someone on the program, it doesn't necessarily mean we endorse every one of their positions. What it does mean is that we're seeking information, perspective, and it's not something that we always agree. I had some people uh, direct message me about Sinke Henderson, who was on earlier this week, giving some post-election analysis, and they didn't agree with everything he said. And I, I don't always agree, and specifically with someone who comes on presenting the Democratic side. He, I felt like he was really moderate in his comments. We didn't agree on everything, but it was nice to hear his perspective. And we have to be open to hearing from the opposing view, the moderate view, the other side, et cetera. The majority of the guests on the program are conservative or from think tanks or White House reporters, people bringing perspective. But we do also want to hear from views that are not the same as our own. It helps keep us sharp and helps us be able to think. And so I'm not discounting anyone who was concerned about the theological background of Paula White. I have read quite a bit on it, but I wasn't having her on to have an adversarial discussion about the theology. Um, I'm not a pastor, and so I don't I don't debate folks on theology. On you know, especially not uh, you know members of of the pastoral community and and church leaders. I will present the truth as I know it, as what I've read in the Bible, and I will always defend the faith. Um, but I just wanted to clarify that. So don't feel as if that was an endorsement. It was an interview about the president and her perspective. That's the music. You know what, citizens? Good evening from the heartland. Guess what? You have onenewsnow.com. News and information up next if you're sticking around. If not, good night and see you next week.